Well, this morning, we're gonna carry on our series, People of the Cross. John kicked it off last week as we looked at the story of Peter around the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the change that took place in him, the hope, the restoration that Jesus offered. Today, we're gonna be looking at the end of Luke chapter 22, the beginning of Luke chapter 23. I invite you to read along with me. And we're gonna be looking at the appearance of what happened to Jesus from his enemies, his opponents. Beginning in uh, Luke chapter two, verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus, by this point he is in chains, began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of elders, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, well, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis of charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. He goes off to Herod, but is sent back to Pilate. Pilate, verse 13, called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But now the whole crowd shouts away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept on shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, and the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. sort of story is the story of Jesus here in the final hours of his life, of being bound 
and blindfolded, accused of blasphemy and beaten by the chief priests and the elders. What sort of story is it as he's handed over to Pilate and, and to Herod and, and um, back to Pilate and condemned to death and handed over to be crucified? What sort of story is it when we hear that baying crowd who had a couple of days later uh, earlier welcomed Jesus as king but now call for his crucifixion? What would the chief priests and the elders write in their report of these events? What would that crowd tell their loved ones when they finally got home? I think they'd have told the story like this. We have won and he has lost. They would tell the story of Jesus as one of descent from a high place, welcomed, um, glorified as he rode into Jerusalem, now culminating in this shameful public spectacle of an execution. They would tell it as a story of defeat and of death. We know, I think, that it culminates in one of Jesus's famous last words, it is finished. And they would listen to those words, they would see the whole scope and the whole sweep of the scene, and they would say that that is a cry of dereliction, a cry of expiration, of defeat and death. That is Jesus's way of saying, I am done for, game over. In fact, that report is literally passed on to Pilate, isn't it? The man who had um, stood before Jesus, stood over Jesus, handed him over, condemned him to death. The report reaches his ears that it is done and it is dusted. But is that really what's going on? Is that really how we should see and understand Jesus' trial, his condemnation, his execution and his death? Because that's not how Jesus saw it. Did you notice it in Luke chapter 2, 22, verse 69? Jesus put it like this. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. From now on, the Son of Man, speaking about himself, I will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. That sounds like Jesus is expecting to be lifted up. Jesus is expecting his story to be one of ascent, not descent. His story to be one of victory, not defeat. Culminating in life, not death. But what we have and what we read, what we understand, is one of an increasing rejection of Jesus. Of a people wanting to use him as a symbol of defeat by publicly having him executed. Making a spectacle of that. But Jesus sees his story not as defeat, but of victory, not of descent, but of exaltation. You know, there's another way of understanding that culminating cry. It is finished, not as despair, all hope lost, but instead this triumphal affirmation that mission has finally been accomplished. And this is something that we need to acknowledge when we come to any story any story containing Jesus, any story that Jesus has an impact on, that appearances so often can be deceptive, can't they? So often when it comes to Jesus and how he lives, how he speaks, the things that he achieves through the, through the way that he interacts, we are 
surprised. We are dumbfounded. We are baffled by the one whose life and action and the world that he seems to exist in is utterly upside down to the one that we expect and accept. Think about some of the stories on Jesus' life of, of who he interacts with, who he eats with. Jesus came and he ate and he drank with the, the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst, sinners seen and condemned by all around. And literally, the Pharisees voiced this surprise at how Jesus lived. How is it that you can go eating and drinking and dining with sinners? Jesus shocked people. And for those of us perhaps who have packaged Jesus as this one who loves the lowly, loves the, the downcast, the cast out, and hates the religious hypocrites, we read stories of Jesus feasting and dining with people like Simon the Pharisee. And we say, well, how can that be, Jesus, that you are willing to come and to spend time and energy and emotion with a hypocrite like him? Jesus baffles us. He always turns our expectations upside down. We see so often in the stories containing Jesus that appearances are deceptive. And why is that? Why is it that Jesus and his way of life is so often just upside down to us? Well, it's because he is so unlike us. It's because his ways are not our ways, or at least the ways that we have learned and the ways that we accept. Let me go back to the beginning. We always like to start in Genesis, the, the, the stories of the formation of the world, the fall of the world, how things are the way they are and the way that they should ultimately be. And what do we read about in the beginning? We read about one who comes with a lie, a deceiver, a serpent, a snake a great monster, a Satan, who wants to trick and to deceive and to rob God's precious humanity, wants to rob the wonderful creation that God has made. And he comes in and he whispers a lie. And the sad story is that the people believe the lie. They choose to listen to his voice rather than to the voice of God, and they sin and they fall. And God comes and in judgment he declares that death will enter in, that from dust you have come, dust you shall return. And the story sort of begins with these three enemies then being present in our world and in our lives, Satan, sin, and death. Three enemies that we have no power to defeat ourselves that hold um, sway over our lives. Three enemies who we just happily, essentially, go along with. And the world that we exist in, the world that we live in, is the world that's constructed and constrained and confined by those three things, Satan, sin and death. But Jesus enters in and Jesus says no. Jesus enters in and says, not that voice, not those consequences, but me, my truth, my life, my Father's will. So when we encounter Jesus, we almost should be expecting things to work out differently to how we would see them or how we would have them or how we would understand them to go. You see, the deceiver's lies have become more plausible to us than the voice of God. Sin has crouched at our door and we have welcomed it in. Death, along with taxes, is an accepted inevitability and a full stop on each of our existence. We're used to 
abiding in that world. We're used to living under that regime. So when Jesus comes along expressly to kick that old regime out and usher in a new management structure, we don't get it. We see a story and we call it death. We understand it as defeat, but Jesus says, no, here is victory. Here is life, mission accomplished. Let me just stop briefly and just think, well, what when Jesus speaks about victory being accomplished? It is finished. When the New Testament authors pick up this idea of Jesus having won, having Jesus having conquered, what is it that they're speaking about, thinking about Jesus having won over? Well, it's those three enemies, those three things that the Bible speaks and describes and paints a portrait of us fighting against and losing in our own strength of Satan, of sin and of death. A friend of mine this week on uh, his Facebook account was just enjoying the cross and sharing just uh, uh, his enjoyment of it. And this is how he put it. Christ has overcome death so that those who believe in him can have life. More than that, Christ has overcome Satan so that those who believe in Jesus could become children of God. More than that, Jesus has overcome and earned forgiveness for our sins so that all of those of us who believe in him can be set free from the slavery to sin we once knew. He has overcome that love of self which weighs us down so that we might know joy and life and freedom. That's what Jesus said that he was about. Jesus said that he had come to overthrow those old ways. Jesus himself said that the time had come to to kick out the prince of this world when he was lifted up, that he would be drawing people to himself as he crushed the serpent's head. Jesus said that as he died, victory was being achieved. Now, we tend to be a people who are very good at seeing that victory when it comes to Sunday. Yes, we see Jesus raised to life and therefore we understand victory has been achieved. But the story here is one of victory in the midst of the darkness. Victory at the very point of death. So often we need the fog to clear, but that fog is only revealing something to us that is already true. This week I was reading a great book. Mark Meinel's book, uh, The Cross Examined. And in it, he retells the story of Napoleon's defeat at the hands of Wellington. Now, at the time, the only way of passing messages quickly over a long distance was by semaphore, flag-waving, essentially. That a certain set of flags would be used and symbols and patterns, and that would pass on a message. And so, to try and communicate this truth, that Wellington had won. Uh, the semaphore operator started waving his flag and he spelt out Wellington, and good, that was received. And then he started spelling out the second word, defeated, and good, that was received, that was written down, and then disaster struck. Then the fog descended, then the flags could be seen no longer. And for a number of hours, that was all that was seen and understood. Wellington defeated. But as time passed, as the winds changed or the the sun beat down on that misty land, whatever it was, 
finally the true message could get through. The semaphore flags was waved further and the full message was understood. Wellington defeats the enemy. And that's what it's like with us. Sometimes we see a story like this of Jesus' death. and uh, We experience a story, circumstances in our own lives that feel like death. And all we can do is see it for that. All we can do is see it for the pain and the suffering and the hurt. All we can do is see it for in, in, in the old way of understanding things. Where, where death is the end. Where, where loss is only loss. We need to wait for the Sunday in order to understand. But no, Jesus is clear. Jesus is adamant from now on. You will see me lifted up. At the cross as he dies, it is finished. Mission accomplished. Victory has been won. So what does that mean for you and I? What does that uh, impact or change as we go away this morning? Well... It should remind us of this true truth that appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving, not just in stories involving Jesus, but in our own stories, if our stories involve Jesus. So often our own lives can look like death and defeat. And we can call into question whether or not Jesus really has achieved what he has said he has achieved. We can, along with the author of Psalm 43, um, seek God and question God. Why must I go about mourning? Are, are you my stronghold? Why have you rejected me? God, bring me peace. Bring me light. Appearances can be deceiving in our lives. But struggles will be a reality. If we are following the new regime, as it were, then our struggles actually will intensify as they rub up against the old ways and the new ways are being unveiled. There's worlds colliding and there will inevitably be friction. Jesus has won, make no mistake about that, but we're in a period of sweeping away the old and installing of the new. There's a story, I've not checked it out to see how true and valid it is, but of a, a, a soldier, a Japanese soldier at the end of the Second World War who had hidden himself in some remote parts, in some remote jungles. And he hadn't had the message. He didn't know that the war had, was over. The war had been lost. And so he continued to set traps. And he continued to, to try and attack any um, people he encountered who weren't other Japanese soldiers out there in the wild. For decades afterwards, he continued to lay traps, even though the war, the war was lost. But the war was most certainly over. And for us, we need to to see and to recognize that there is a new sheriff in town who has all of the authority, but not everyone has fallen in line with that yet. So struggles will continue and appearances will be deceiving that sometimes we will hurt, sometimes we will suffer. In fact, that is all the more likely if we follow after Jesus, but that is not a recipe. That is not a recipe for defeat. That is the arena in which victory will be understood and felt 
and one. For us, we need to go away this morning and we need to understand that Jesus is in charge, always. Think of the story that we've encountered of Jesus being bound and blindfolded and passed on and sentenced and executed and dying on the cross. There is not a single moment in that story where he loses control. There is not a single moment in that story where things have gotten out of hand. Jesus had earlier said, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and to take it back up again. Jesus told the disciples that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, to die, to be buried, and for three days later to rise again. That wasn't a prediction, that was a promise. Jesus was in charge then, and he continues to be in charge now. That doesn't mean that he's the author of the pain, of the struggles, of the hurt in our lives, of the darkness, but he is in control in the midst of it. He is the God who is making all things for the good of those who trust him and love him. So ultimately, this is what I think we need this morning. We need to understand and to have our minds renewed. Because we, though perhaps saved, though redeemed, though brought into the truth of Jesus Christ, we still have those old ways those old patterns, those old thought structures in our mind that when we see suffering, we think defeat. No, Jesus comes and he says, suffering is part of what it looks like for me in my kingdom to bring victory. We need to have our minds renewed. You know, Jesus encouraged his disciples like this. He said, I've told you all these things, all the things that were gonna happen, all the trials, all the tribulations. He says, so that you may have peace. Because you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, what you and I need more than anything is to contemplate together this new world, this new life, this victory that Jesus has for us. We need to have our minds renewed. We need to challenge our old assumptions and we need to do that together. I ask you the question this morning, is that something you want to happen? Do you want to have the way you view life and your existence transformed? Is that something you expect to happen? Is it something that you're seeking to happen? It should be. Otherwise, we will constantly be in this position of questioning. We will unnecessarily be um, suffering anguish when the appearance of life deceives us because we are listening more to the deceiver's voice than to the God of truth. We need to have our minds renewed. We need to come to his word. We need to pray. We need to contemplate. And I would say we need to do that together. We can do it alone, but Lord, we know that you have put us in a place, in a community, in a church, in a family together where we can speed up the process. We need to be a people who are learning to listen to his voice and not the lies. As I was thinking how we might do that, you know, my mind went to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, which begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how that is a renewing prayer to pray. 
how it is is a prayer which speaks truth about who he is and totally and utterly undermines our old way of thinking about things, of how our name should be lifted up, of how our will needs to be done and meted out. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is a prayer of having our minds and our lives and our existence renewed. So for us, as we contemplate today, this story that looked like defeat, but is really a story of victory, we need to know and we need to understand that appearances can be deceiving, that struggles will in fact continue, but none of that means that Jesus is not in charge. What it means is that in order to, to see and to process and to grow through those moments, we need to have our minds renewed. Lord, help us to seek to do that together as we pray together, as we read your word together, as we uh, share stories of Christ's victory in our lives, share stories of Christ's new world breaking through in our lives around us, that we would see him that we would savour him, that we would live in him all the more. Amen.